I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Once again, the Republican Party and their members in Congress have screwed average Americans in order to give another huge benefit to America's super wealthy. We discovered this basically day before yesterday as people started to carefully read the tax law or this $2 trillion stimulus bill that was passed. People asked the question, how is it that you can have a $2 trillion piece of stimulus legislation that gets written in 48 hours? How is that possible? And the easy answer is there's a long line of lobbyists at the door and every single one of them has their little 20-page piece to add to it. And boom, you pile them all together and you've got a 1,000-page piece of legislation. I mean, that's really the bottom line. You might have gotten 1200 bucks, but the truly rich got a fortune. David K. Johnson writing about this over at Raw Story, although I talked about this yesterday here. It was on Daily Kos. It was in the New York Times. This is a quote from David K. Johnston, quote, almost 82% of the tax savings will go to the Trump Kushner family and 4,300 of their fellow millionaire landlords, end quote. It wasn't until after the bill was signed that we discovered that Mitch McConnell's buddies in the Senate had slipped in this little tiny provision that gave massive tax breaks and profits to real estate moguls, especially real estate moguls who had been making money on insider information on the stock market. And we don't have the absolute proof that Trump is doing that, but I would be boggled if he isn't. And of course, we don't have the proof because he's covering it up. And because they're not responding to FOIA requests, they're not responding to lawsuits, they're not responding to congressional subpoenas, they're just stealing everything they can that's not nailed down as fast as they can, figuring that by the time they get out of office in January, they're going to be rich, 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 richer. And, you know, the rest of us are going to be poor, poor, poor. I mean, no wonder Donald Trump was so eager to sign this legislation. And now Mitch McConnell is demanding another two or three hundred billion dollars in bailouts to billionaires and rich people. And the Democrats, uh, particularly in the House, but also in the Senate, are saying, no, not going to happen. But, you know, if it's, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi has been the point person on this, saying we will not pass another piece of legislation that doesn't take care of people first. 1200 bucks was throwing a bone to the dog. It's just nuts. And to add insult to injury, Donald Trump wants you to go back to work even if you could die. I mean, are you enthusiastic to be part of this gruesome experiment? 
there's literally a whole group of Fox watching, right wing hate radio listening people around the country who are protesting, protesting, honest to God, not making this up, who are protesting that they want the country opened up. And one in particular was particularly hysterical. Uh, Joshua Potash tweeted this. He says, you can't make this crap up. In Michigan, people are clogging the streets. And there's a picture of a downtown area, and I'm not sure if it's Lansing or Grand Rapids, but it's all these cars, you know, blocks of cars that have just kind of jammed the streets and stopped. It's called Operation Gridlock. He says, in Michigan, people are clogging the streets with their cars to protest the stay-at-home order. Which raises a really interesting question. If it's safe to reopen, why are they protesting in their cars? (laughs) But anyhow, we had another Trey, another legislator named Trey, who came out and said, sign me up. You know, if it means dying for the economy, I'm willing to go. Right. So are you enthusiastic about being part of Trump's gruesome experiment? And can you make do with 1200 bucks for a two or three month period? Because it looks like that might be what it's going to be. You know, Americans are sick and tired of this whole thing. This behavior that we've been seeing from politicians unanimously among Republicans and even a few scattered Democrats here and there. Ever since the Reagan revolution in 1981, we are friggin' over it. The neoliberal Reaganomics experiment of the last 40 years is a fraud. And the coronavirus has torn the mask off that fraud, to torture a metaphor. And we all need to be supporting the progressive politicians who are saying no to more billionaire bailouts. It's just the right thing to do. And we've got to be doing it. On the line with us is Darja Mail, the independent journalist and staff reporter over at Truthout. We had him on about his book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. He has a new book out, or soon to be out, it's titled The Changing Earth. The website is thechangingearth.net. Darja Mail, of course, you can tweet him at D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L. The subtitle for The Changing Earth is Indigenous Voices in Turtle Island. Dar, welcome back to the program. Tell us about your book. Well, thanks, Tom. It's always good to be with you. And the book is essentially picking up, and actually we are just in the initial stages of it. We have started work on it, me and my co-author, Stan Rushworth, who is an Indigenous elder and teacher. And we basically picked up where I left off in the end of ice, where we're in this climate crisis. And then now with COVID-19 and everything that's upon us now, all of these converging crises, how are we to be during this time? And how are we to keep trying to be of service on the earth during all these converging crises? And essentially the book takes the tact of, well, indigenous people, specifically in the U.S. and Canada, who have already lived through a sort of their own apocalypse, including being diseased intentionally by the U.S. government and genocide carried out against them and all of the things that have happened to them and continue to happen to them. Well, these people have an intense amount of wisdom to share with all of us now about how we might best situate ourselves internally and externally during these times. Wow, that's a big order. I know in your book, The End of Ice, you talk about amplification, about what happens when methane, and by the way, methane levels are spiking right now. And it's not because of industrial activity. It's apparently because the poles are melting 
and permafrost is thawing, it's releasing methane. And that's got a lot of scientists really, really freaked out. We could, as we watch as the coronavirus goes from, okay, you got five infections, now you've got 50 infections, now you have 500 infections, now you have 5,000 infections, now you have 50,000, and pretty soon you have 500,000. And that's where we're at, by the way, as a nation right now, over a half a million infections, more than any other country on earth. That same math, that same logarithmic math can apply to alterations in the climate as well. As I recall, I believe you point that out in your book, The End of Ice. So if that's the case, we're going to be looking not just at this crisis with the coronavirus, but we're going to be looking at, I mean, we already are to some extent with melting permafrost and wildfires and wild storms and things, but we're going to look at exponentially worse, more severe weather and things like that. So A, reality check that, and then B, what lessons can we learn from indigenous people about how to respond to these kinds of crises? Well, what you shared about the climate is exactly right. I'm, of course, continuing to track it, given what was in the end of ice and how much more rapidly everything is unfolding than it was even when I wrote that book, which was just published a year ago. And it's just literally today a report came out and showed Greenland had a record year of melting in 2019. And of course, now everything is ahead of schedule, including the thawing of the permafrost, which one of the scientists I interviewed for the end of ice, Vladimir Romanovsky, a leading expert on permafrost and its thawing, co-authored a report this fall that came out and showed we're 70 years ahead of schedule with the thawing, that they didn't expect it to be at the point it is right now for another 70 years. And that just continues to accelerate. So I think it's it's buckle up time with all fronts on the climate crisis. And then now going into this summer, where we're certainly going to have extreme events like wildfires, we've even seen the historic tornadoes in the southeast just last week. And rising sea levels and, of course, probably an intensified hurricane season again, and then against the backdrop of this pandemic. So what are you going to do with climate refugees? You know, it's really getting into an extreme situation on top of the economic crisis. And with all of that going on, this is a situation that Native Americans, just talking specifically about this country, They've lived through this, you know, minus the extreme weather events, but economic deprivation, extreme poverty, intentional genocide against them, the spreading of infected blankets against them using literally biological warfare. In some places in the country, seeing over a 90 percent reduction in population, like in California, in a 25-year period, that is so extreme to imagine, and they are still here. And they have managed to find a way to maintain their traditions and cultural practices through all of that, and they are still here. And then now they are the ones that so many people are going back to and seeking what's referred to as TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, and going back to these people that this government had tried to decimate for years. And it's because what they do works, that they've lived through all of these extreme times in this country that have been brought upon them, and they're still here, and they're still managing to live close to the earth and teach people things like we saw in California in the wake of the wildfires last summer of, look, here's what you need to do to actually maintain and manage forests. This is what we did long before you people came here. And we're seeing that happening here and in Canada and in places like Australia where people that actually already were living that way with the earth in certain areas of Australia, for example, during their last summer of extreme wildfires, it didn't burn. 
And those were some of the only places in the regions that saw the worst wildfires where it literally didn't burn. So those are just a couple of examples. Hmm. Let's make this a little more practical and a little more at the level of the individual who might be watching or listening to this program right now. Forest management is a marvelous thing, and indigenous wisdom on that is great. But what would indigenous communities tell us about how to create community during a time of crisis like this, or how to keep your family together, or how to survive in a time of of crisis? Well, it literally is essentially doing that. And now with the lockdowns that we're all experiencing here on the West Coast, we're being forced into community. And so this is, as Stan Rushworth is my co-author's name, and as he and I are talking about this regularly and what he's seen across indigenous populations where he has so many contacts and friends, is that that's how, for example, people have always been living on reservations, and they've been forced to. You come to rely upon each other out of necessity. And that's what I think many people here, including myself, are already experiencing now, where look, I have my community where I live, and I'm reaching out to my neighbors, and they're reaching out to me. How can we get through this together? Does anybody need anything? Looking out for older folks who it's more risky for them to go to stores, so I'm going to go for them. That kind of thing, literally just living and working and caring for each other, whether we're blood-related or simply just neighbors or friends. And that's a perfect example. And I think a lot of us are experiencing this right now. And the amazing thing is, is this is how we should have always been living with the earth anyway. And it's how indigenous people, for the most part, have always been living with the earth anyway. First, because it was the right way of doing so with the planet before the industrial revolution occurred and spread across the planet. And now it's becoming out of necessity, once again, forced upon us by this pandemic and the economic crisis, both of which are just getting warmed up here. So it comes back around to knowing your locality, knowing what's here, being well-resourced within that with your neighbors. And it's not just living with the earth, it's living with each other, which I think is the point you're making. Dar Jamail, the new book will be The Changing Earth, the website thechangingearth.net, T-H-E, changingearth.net, and you can tweet him at Dar Jamail. Dar, thanks for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. And good luck with the book. I wish you the very best. (music) Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. He also has the website rdwolf2fs.com, and his Twitter handle is profwolf2fs. And uh, Professor Wolf, uh, welcome back. Last week we were talking about how, well, I asked the question, what does getting back to normal mean and what will the new normal be from an economist point of view? And, and we really didn't get a chance to get into that answer. So let me ask you that again. And this week we can try to answer it. Okay, well, let me try. There's a real difficulty here because really no one knows. And the attempt to answer the question shouldn't be interpreted by anyone to understand me to be claiming that I know what is going to happen. The reality is nobody knows. The biggest single problem is a clash, a contradiction, if you like, between the understandable desire of people who have no job and no income 
and for whom the check from the government, if even they get it, will only take them a small part of the way to recover what they've already lost, let alone help them in the future. The big question is the tension between wanting to quote-unquote get back to work and thereby earn a living and feel good about yourself and support your family and all the rest versus the fact that the truth is that it isn't safe to do that. You are presenting the vast majority of the American people with an unspeakable choice. Either solve your economic problem, which is increasing its pressure on you literally every day, or take a chance that this disease is rampant, that the people in authority either don't know it or don't want to face it, and that you are going to be taking a risk which would be terrible for you as an individual, but given the fact that this is an infectious disease, means that if you go back, you're risking your spouse, your children, your elderly, your friends, your neighbors, and so forth. Here's the starkest statistic everybody should have in mind. We are a nation of 325-odd million people. We haven't tested one million of them yet. That means we don't know where this disease is, we don't know what the different forms of it may already be, and we can't come up with a reasonable strategy when we are in that level of backwardness, unpreparedness, that that one statistic, not that it's the only relevant one, but that one makes clear. And I think our immediate future will therefore be an enormous tension, which we can already see, around going back to work because of the fundamental uncertainties about what that's going to mean. Hmm. Yeah, I get it. And so much is going to depend on whether there is a vaccine and how effective that vaccine is. It's like, you know, the polio vaccine changed the landscape of America. But on the other hand, the flu vaccine, not so much. I mean, it seems to help some people, but it's nowhere near as effective as you would have to have to mitigate a genuinely deadly disease. Not to say that people don't die of flu every year. But, you know, Tom, I mean, let me push a little bit. This is the third crash we've had in this young century. We had the Mm dot-com crash in 2000, we had the subprime mortgage crash in 2008, and now we have this. Each time we call the crisis by the name of the trigger, the thing from quote-unquote outside that came in and did us all this damage, I'm an economist. I've got to tell you, it's not the trigger. It's the system that can't handle the trigger. Overpriced Mm. stocks, which is what we had with dot-com in 2000, that's not a new problem. The stock market has overpriced sectors all the time. People failing to cover their mortgages, that's not the first time it happened in 2008. It's the umpteenth time. And this isn't the first viral disaster we've had on our hands. We've had them on and off for at least the last century that we've kept records of. We recently had Ebola and MERS and SARS. I mean... If our economy is so poorly prepared to face these kinds of issues and get through them, it tells you something about a system that isn't robust, that isn't healthy. You can't just blame it on the trigger. Just like we're saying, look, 
a good number of the people felled by the corona were people whose diets weren't so good and who had other diseases, perhaps, and who had uh, viral troubles in their past. The same is true of an economic system. We get through these things or we don't. And if we don't, blaming it on the thing that triggered it is a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, one would think. I'm curious if, you know, I know this is the water you swim in, is the world of economics. It seems to me that the more progressive theories that there needs to be a very, very aggressive and strong social safety net. You have to have high taxation of great wealth in order to equalize or reduce inequality. You know, basically the Scandinavian model as a version of friendly capitalism is growing There's a new consensus emerging around this, it seems, particularly among so-called conservative Democrats, but even some Republicans. And my sense is that one of the reasons why these right-wing billionaires are helping to fund these protest movements, and Trump tweeting out at three Democratic governors, encouraging people in their states to basically take up weapons and liberate the state. In the case of Virginia, he said, you know, his Second Amendment, and he's literally using the word liberate this could be a call to violence, that the reason why these right-wing billionaires are funding these kinds of movements, the DeVos family in Michigan in particular, is because they don't want to see taxes go up on billionaires. They don't want to see this emerging consensus that, you know, we should be more like Scandinavia. They're far more resilient than we are. They're doing just fine. Their hospitals are not overwhelmed, et cetera. What do you think? Yeah, I think that this is becoming a very, very dangerous country in which to live, and not only because of the virus. I mean, here's the bottom line that is no way out of this. It wasn't profitable in this country where we have the enterprises that could have produced the masks and the gloves and the beds and the ventilators. We know we could have done it. We have the raw materials. It wasn't profitable, so private enterprises didn't do it, which I understand. It isn't profitable to produce lots of masks. It isn't profitable to store them in warehouses and stockpile them judiciously around the country where people might need them. And because our government tends to believe that whatever is good for profit is somehow good for the society, they didn't come in and compensate for what the private capitalists wouldn't do. And so they became, instead of a compensating agency, a complicit agency. And here we are with the worst record on dealing with this virus virtually of any country. This is a problem with capitalism. You cannot rely on the private sector's profit focus if what you want is to take care, for example, of the public's health. You have to have a different motivation. It can't be the profit motive. It has to be, in this case, let's say, the motive of being secure for infectious diseases. And that's a critique of capitalism. There is no way around. Absolutely. And so well said and so well seen when we look at our for-profit healthcare system. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Okay, Tom, glad to do it. Have a great afternoon. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. 
NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NUleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com. Code Tom, it's spelled T-H-O-M. NewLeafnaturals.com. Let's talk seriously about exactly what the options are for our country or any country when it comes to this coronavirus. Donald Trump has now said that if governors have their states shut down, he can force them to open. He tweeted this. He said, for the purpose of creating conflict and confusion, some of the fake news media are saying that it's the governor's decision to open up the states, not the president of the United States. He said, let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. So Trump says he can reopen the country. What's that all about? What's going on here? What does this have to do with public health? Let's be very clear. There are basically three ways that a government can deal with this stuff. The first is what the British health minister was advocating just a few weeks ago. And what Donald Trump has apparently been advocating inside the White House. And that is just let the virus burn through the population We talked about this on Friday, the whole herd immunity thing. Let the virus just burn through the population, kill off the old, the weak, the obese, the hypertensive, the heart patients, kill them all off. And then you've got a strong, healthy and immune workforce and you can go back to work and you can and you can compete against the rest of the planet. And while you're doing that, the older, rich folks, Donald Trump, the, you know, Charles Koch, <laughs> Robert Mercer. I mean, pick your billionaire, right? They, they can hide out in their own private home where they've got their own greenhouse and they've got their own food and they've got their own little guard, you know, private guards and cooks who all live there. And so they're not exposed to the outside world. And they can just like shelter in place until there's a vaccine. So that's number one, burn through and kill lots and lots of people. The problem with that strategy, by the way, this from Christina Cabrera over a Talking Points memo. President Donald Trump reportedly has been privately suggesting an eyebrow-raising solution. Let the virus keep burning through America. Trump asked the White House Corona Task Force, he asked Anthony Fauci, this was in March, just a few weeks ago, he said, why don't we just let this wash over the country? And according to the reporters, who heard from two different people who were in the room when this happened, Fauci was, quote, stunned, end quote, by the question. He told Trump, Mr. President, many people would die. This would result in one to two million deaths in the United States, and it would happen over a short period of time, and so it would overwhelm the hospitals. Which brings us to strategy number two, which is called mitigation which is where we're at now in all but one of the states in the United States. Well, actually, we're not even not even all the states because you've still got eight Republican controlled states that are doing absolutely nothing. So they're in the let it burn through the country mode, right? The Republican controlled states. But the mitigation says 
we're going to let it burn through the country. And we're going to let hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people over a period of years die. But we're going to release people out of quarantine in little dribs and drabs slowly so that we don't overwhelm our healthcare system. Let's be very clear about this. The mitigation strategy only saves lives in as much as it keeps our hospitals open and not overwhelmed so they can deal with heart attacks and cancer and strokes and car accidents and other things, you know, other things that frankly, some of these hospitals can't deal with right now because they're overwhelmed with coronavirus. So the mitigation strategy, which is being officially pursued by the Trump administration, is really just slowly let people out. And yeah, some of them will die, but they're going to die at a slow rate. Rather than having a thousand people hit the emergency room all at once, that same thousand people are going to get so sick that they need an emergency room. But we're going to do it a hundred of them this week, a hundred of them next week, a hundred of them the week after that. And this is the debate, the dis- this is the principal discussion we're having in the United States. And this is how it's emerging. Is how do we start, how do we quote, restart the economy? In other words, how do we use the mitigation strategy to slowly infect as many people as possible so that we don't overwhelm our hospitals and we end up with herd immunity. That's mitigation. And, you know, one of the things that's under discussion is let people under 30 go back to work. Now, it kind of misses the fact that most people under 30 know somebody over 60, but nonetheless, Or a lot of people under 30 have heart disease or are obese, you know, a third of our population. But, you know, again, this is, you know, you let the people under 30 out and a smaller percentage of them are going to end up in the ER and a lot of them are going to get sick. And so you're going to have some herd immunity in the under 30s. And then once all the under 30s are infected, then you let the under 40s out of quarantine and you infect them. And maybe the, uh, you know, over 50 and over 60s, those folks who have really, really high death rates, we'll just leave them in quarantine indefinitely until there's a vaccine. So, which creates job opportunities for younger people. So that's the mitigation strategy that is more or less the official policy of the United States government. And that Trump is threatening to basically impose on governors. I can unlock your state whenever I want. The third strategy which Australia is debating right now, which South Korea put into place back in January, that Taiwan put into place back in January, that China put into place back in December, well, in in early January, actually, that Germany and Denmark and Norway, this third strategy is called containment. And containment is where you do aggressive testing throughout your population. And then whenever you find people who are sick, you do contact tracing. This is what we did with sexually transmitted diseases back in the 60s and 70s. I guess we still do it. Public health departments, you present with an STD and they want to know who you had sex with. We still do it with HIV. And so that's actually where you just say, we're not going to allow this virus to spread anymore in our state. 
And once you've got that under control, once you've got that locked down, once every time a little hotspot pops up, you step on it, you've got containment. And you can put your workforce back to work. Now, Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, has just put this into place. It's not going to take effect until the end of the week. He's trying to, quote, leverage public health students. He's creating a network. He's got over a thousand people so far that they have essentially hired. These are contact tracers. They will work from their homes. You don't have to knock on somebody's door. You can call them on the phone or send them an email. But when somebody is diagnosed, he's trying to do 5,000 tests a day right now. In fact, on Friday, they conducted 5,000 tests in Massachusetts. He's, they're shooting for a much higher number than that eventually. But basically, they want to test everybody in Massachusetts. And then anytime somebody turns up positive, you ask them, okay, who have you been in contact with over the last month? Well, I went to the supermarket. Then you contact the supermarket. Who, who went shopping in the supermarket? Who are the checkout clerks? And you do that. Those are our three options. Let it burn through and create herd immunity. Let it slowly burn through and create herd immunity or lock it down and have containment. This is the Tom Hartman program. And what I find most astonishing is the lock it down and have containment like they're doing in Singapore right now is never discussed in the American media. Most people don't realize that there are these three options. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.